0: Welcome to a new episode of the Miss Education Podcast. Albert Kim here with my co-hosts, Tommy Chang and Brian Lin. Yeah, we are taking it back to the ball days. Our love of basketball is how this podcast started. So we have an extra special guest. Let me kick it over to Tommy Chang for the intro. It's an honor to have you here, Frank.
1: We've met a few months ago at the annual... Education Leaders of Color Conference in Vegas, we appreciate you being there. It meant a lot to us. I'm a board member. Listening to you and Trayvon talk about the making of your debut documentary, 30 at the Garden, was super dope. For our audience members, Frank's documentary about the cultural significance of Germany's Lin's 2012 Linsanity Run, it premiered in 2022's Tribeca Film Festival and was shortlisted for the Academy Award for Best Documentary Short. Frank is a filmmaker, artist, storyteller. His work focuses on issues of justice, inclusion, and American life. He has collaborated on projects with the likes of Senator Elizabeth Warren, a hero of mine, political campaigns such as Move On, and organizations like the Smithsonian Institute. He was a member of the team that created a popular, notorious R.B.G. campaign honoring the late Supreme Court Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg, and he began his career working on the Obama media team in 2008.
0: Shit on Mitt Romney! <laughs> <laughs>
2: wow, proud
0: graduate of Bowdoin
1: That's, That is right. Is what a great intro, guys! What a great intro to have you here. Hey. So you describe yourself as a filmmaker, artist, storyteller at an intersection of art, politics, and culture. What were the greatest stories that inspired you to choose this path? And I'm kind of curious about also, what are some of the great stories yet Mm. to be told? It's a great question.
2: Oh, man. I mean, there are always great stories around us that don't get the spotlight, right? But for me specifically, I am an Obama kid. Everything that I do that I've done in my adult life have been acts of belonging. Mm. Let's put it that way. Mm. So when I was a teenager, I heard him speak at the 2004 Democratic National Convention in Boston, and it changed my life, right? And I dove headfirst into politics for 10 years. And then when that experience ended and we sort of entered the modern era with, you know, all the Trumpian overtones of the way our American discourse happens now, I sort of became somebody who's willing to put my name on things that I make right and they started with short film and they are now movies that we can talk about and i think for me storytelling is how we sustain ourselves in hostile environments right Mm -hmm. um and i think storytelling i think especially if you're asian-american they crystallize moments of joy and moments of crisis. And those two things are how you create identity. Mm. So when you're happy and then when you're afraid, what do you do? You turn to the people you want to celebrate with and the people you want to be in solidarity with. And that is how you create community. It's how you create identity. That's always been true for as long as humans have been around. And I think for Asian Americans, yeah. it's still such a new identity. In this new country, in, in the long scheme of things, it's exciting if you think about it. There's a lot of challenges, a lot of frustrations, a lot of not, not enough people, frankly, pay enough attention. But that's sort of very much how we approach 38 to Garden, right? Because 38 de Garden is a moment of joy that we are reliving in a moment of crisis. Mm-hmm. So that's how you create community joy and crisis, and what you choose to do to respond to both. Yeah. and that probably crystallizes me in in a nutshell. Yeah, I remember that campaign like it
1: was so moving and I think the people talk about Barack Obama as the first African American president, but this was a cat that grew up in Indonesia. I remember the one episode where he was eating in Vietnam with Anthony Bourdain. He was talking about how. Yeah. Oh, yeah. That episode. Shit. I mean, he was talking about his most memorable meal being on the roadside in in Indonesia. And there's this restaurant. He sees fish in the river and they catch it and pick it up. And the way he used chopsticks. I mean, the way he talked about (laughs) fucking. Okay.
0: Fish, yes. like grilled fish. I mean, Real talk, no. God damn. Yo, real talk, right after his crazy, the life-changing Boston speech. Yeah, that speech. Right? Like 2004, grilled. right? Yeah, we were trying to make sense of it. And one of my Asian friends was super political. And like, yo, Barack Obama's Asian. And I am like, <laughs> really? I was like, no, nah, I don't think he's uh, Barack Obama. I'm sure he's black. I mean, he might be half white or whatever. I, again, we didn't know a ton about him. But like, I mean, he grew up in Hawaii. And I was like,
2: oh, yeah. shit, okay. I guess he's Asian then. He's, mul- yeah. no, he, yeah. at the he time, yeah. you know what I mean? Barack yeah. Obama like, is multi-culti. That's, right. yeah, that's, that's right. what he yeah, is. Yeah. Right. yeah. And that's like, we that's my bio. We ourselves in
1: him. In all. Yeah, exactly. So. Hawaii dog. Exactly. exactly. And also just bro. like,
2: you know, he he, uh, he has a sister that I think yeah. is half Asian. Yeah. He obviously grew up in Indonesia, right? But I don't like, that honestly wasn't what, like, drew me to him at all. It was talking about the immigrant experience and being different in this country. So I'm an immigrant kid. I came here when I was seven. I grew up in China. And then I, when I got here, I just never felt like I belonged here. Yeah. Right. In any capacity. And the only, the first time I felt like anybody gave me permission to belong was the night that he gave that speech. And that Incredible. speech, yeah, I mean, could only be given by somebody who has dealt with feelings about yeah. belonging and not belonging their whole life. Yeah. And it was literally, I mean, I think people will be studying that speech hundreds of years from now, if there is hundreds of years from now, who knows? But like, I think, yeah, exactly. I think that we have to like, we have to sort of mark that moment as the moment that multicultural America with all of its joys and horrors that we're living in right now in the age of Trump, unfortunately, like all of that sort of is birthed from that speech yeah. mm-hmm. and the possibility it created and then That's the right. fear it created from other people. Yeah. Right. And I, I don't think it's, I'm not the only person who felt that way about that speech. Yeah. Millions of people. It's no, a cultural abs- unlocking. Yeah. yeah. It yeah.
1: really is. I mean, like everybody talks globally about yeah. how America is like the global society is mm-hmm. in this nation, but we've never had a leader yeah. of this country that represented the global society. Yeah. Yes. Yes. He was the one. Like he he had the lived experience. He could talk to it, and it didn't matter what race you were. Like you connected with them. Yeah, that's why he won.
0: Yeah, yeah.
2: And that's why Donald Trump keeps on saying globalist.
0: Yeah, yeah. It's real though. It's real. I mean,
2: it's the fear of this kind of person, this kind of America, this kind of identity emerging as the dominant identity in American life. Yeah, that's what animates every Trumper in America. So I think. I'm not one of those people who believes that like politics can be zero sum if you right. want it to be, okay like power can be zero sum if you want it to be, but it doesn't have to be it doesn't have to be if it was then we wouldn't live in a country like this yeah. Yeah, right? right this is this is a country of cultural compromises, not just political compromises, right. cultural compromises yeah, 100%. That's 100%. and so true. and I think we're going through the growing pains of what will have to be another cultural compromise. Like us electing Barack Obama is an ascendant task. That's what it felt like. And then the people who elected Donald Trump are people who don't want that to happen. And I would say like, you know, you can break down 21st century American politics into seven words. Yes, we can make America great again. Yes, we can It's ascendance. Right. Mm-hmm. Make America Great Again is pushing back. Right. right? And um, we're going to be.
0: That's facts, man.
2: Well, it's funny because like, so when they at Edlock, when they announced
0: that y'all were coming, there was like, definitely like, oh, you know, Frank, Jeremy, Jeremy Lin, Lin, Lin. the Asian American thing. But I was like, nah, I just want to sit down and talk beyond your Asian American identity in Connecticut, all that stuff. There is a unique, I don't know if it was like longing or thing, but what was your relationship with basketball growing up?
2: I mean, basketball was, like, how I became American. I came here when I was seven. Mm-hmm. I grew up in China. When you're seven, you're just old enough to have a semblance of a memory of what it was like, but you're also, you're conscious enough to know, like, you're an immigrant. Yeah, you, you don't speak this language. You don't know this culture. And to me, watching Michael Jordan play and then watching The Fresh Prince of Bel-Air, like, those were the two things that I did mm-hmm. to become American. Um, I mean, when I was a kid, I remember, like, I used to try to find the... You know, if somebody mm. left the sports pages mm. near the bus stop or something, I'd pick them up and I would memorize Michael Jordan's stats before right. I got That's got right. into the box score. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, every before every I got to school. Lineup, you
1: can name every starting in your lineup right. on yeah. Right. Right. And uh,
2: ideas, exactly, exactly. When you had to touch the paper to know. Yeah. And when he, I remember like at that time, I thought Jordan was a God. I remember watching the Utah Jazz, Chicago Bulls mm. finals and being like, this man is not human. He is a God. And then when he retired, because I grew up, New Haven, Connecticut is like... I mean, Connecticut, at the end of the day, doesn't really have his own identity. Like, it's sort of... You're either a Boston extension identity or a New York extension identity. Like, So I was definitely the New York extension identity. And when Jordan retired, that next season was the lockout year when the Knicks were the eighth seed and went to the finals. And made the magic. And they had that Larry Johnson four-point play. It was Spree. It was all that stuff. And I... I was like instantly a Knicks fan because I was like, I'm already a free agent from a fan perspective. MJ just, <laughs> MJ just retired. Um, and I so I grew up a Knicks fan. So you could imagine during Linsanity, I was delirious because yeah. that was my childhood. I was watching. I wish I could put on the, the Knicks jersey, right? And have New York across my chest. And then I see this kid. And like, that wasn't the first time I heard it, Jeremy. I actually grew up in Connecticut. You become yep. a UConn fan. And when he was at Harvard, he comes into stores, and he drops 30 on Kemba. Smackdown on Kemba. Yeah, Yeah. on ESPN. That's right. He dunked twice. and I remember watching that game vividly, like, who the fuck is this?
0: (laughs) Frank is like, is he half? Is he half?
2: No, but he he definitely looked full Asian, okay? (laughs) Right? And I was just like, yo, like this is... But like, I remember in the back of my head, this is the curse of low expectations. I remember thinking to myself after that game was over, I was like, you know what? If I never hear from him again, that's okay. Because yeah. at least I got yeah, to see that. Yeah. And I just never really paid attention after that. I knew that he ended up on the Warriors and that he wasn't getting playing time. But it just it wasn't hitting for me. Because yeah. I was just I was like a basketball fan, period. At that point, I sort of lost interest in the Knicks. I'll be honest with you because... They weren't that good. After Marbury came in and disappointed everybody, like I just sort of tuned out for a bit. And I was like, I'm going to be a fan of players yeah. and of the league. I'm not going to try to be a fan of a specific team because that's just too much how, heartbreak. How millennial of
0: you. How- <laughs> right, exactly.
2: Right. It was like, you know, people now are LeBron fans yeah. or Curry fans, KD fans, right? So I was just trying to figure out if I could just be a fan of the NBA. Yeah. And then when Linsanity happened... It just pulled me in so fast. Yeah. And uh, I I still can't believe it happened. Yeah, Right? You look back on it. I, I say the same thing about, I worked in politics for over a decade. And I say the same thing about Barack Obama becoming president. It's like, I, did that really happen? Yeah.
0: Which is more unbelievable.
2: <laughs> well, it's actually funny because that's that was the original idea. Right. Was when Trayvon, my producer, Trayvon Free, for 30 at the Garden, when we were having this conversation, it was about impossible moments. What are the moments where society had told a group of people you can't do something and then someone just shatters it to mm-hmm. pieces? And the first example we came up with was Obama because we experienced it. Right. So then we were like, yo, what other experience comes even close to that? And I was like, look, man, I'm Asian. So there's only one. <laughs> yeah. And it's the night Jeremy dropped 38 at the Garden against Kobe and the yeah. Lakers. Mm-hmm. And he looked at me, he was like, 38 at the Garden? That's a movie. And that's, why that's why the movie is called 38th the Gardens, yeah. from that conversation. Yeah. But it's about impossible moments. It's about when society tells you you can't do something, and then you just do it. And right. then billions of people watch you do mm. it. You know? And both of those happen in our lifetime. Yeah, and they happen so quickly. Right. Right? That's what, what was wild for me was like, I was going through, when I was a kid, I don't know what it was like for y'all when you were growing up, but I was an immigrant kid. I never felt like I belonged anywhere. I wasn't Chinese enough. I started losing the language in high school. At high school, nobody told me I belonged anywhere. Mm-hmm. They kept on just making fun of me. I wasn't very good at math or science. I was really good at English and that's history. That's but like they would call me like everybody in school called me the anti-Asian cuz I was oh, bad wow. at math and science. Right? Like I just it's a badge of honor now. Asian, <laughs> Be- B- Be- Be- here.
0: Right. Be- 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 leading the Asian Be- movement.
2: But here. um it was just like I was a total wallflower because of it. You just sort of you end up shrinking, and there was nobody in my personal life or in the world at large that had told me that I belonged here and then, like to show that I belong here did something that proved that it was undeniable, yeah right, and the first person to do that was Obama, the second person to do that was Jeremy Lynn, and I don't think you know it's like one of the great honors of doing this project was after. We finished and we were doing the awards run. Jeremy was like, you changed the way I was looking at Linsanity this whole time. Mm. Yeah, because he was it's like, I, I had to stop looking at it from my personal point of view, but to see it from a larger societal impact, one. Right. Yeah, it right. wasn't
1: about, just about him, it's about his right.
2: impact, yeah. And that to me is like, look, this is, when I look back on that experience, the greatest honor for me to do this project is that I got to say how I felt about Linsanity. I got to put it into words, not just words, into visuals. And it obviously captured what so many people had felt but hadn't expressed over the last 10 years. And to have that be, be real, to, have, to come to fruition, I, I still can't believe it happened. Yeah.
0: I mean, it's still that Lynn Sanity run is still in the ether, right? Mike D'Antoni was on JJ Red, Reddick's podcast a couple like weeks like, ago, yeah. right? And I feel like JJ Reddick basically asks every teammate or coach <laughs> of Jeremy's. During that run, like, yo, you were there. How was it like? And I don't know if that's intentional or if it just, even back to Antonio was like, he confirmed. It. He's like, yeah, never thought he would amount to nothing. Didn't think he was a real player. And it was fucking crazy. Yeah. 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 I remember
2: hearing. I mean, we never lose sight of magic, man. And it felt like magic. Yeah. So we wax nostalgic about magic and we probably will to the day we die. Let's just keep it real. Yeah. Right.
1: How did you get him? How do you convince him to do it?
2: This was a long process. So we came up with the idea like late 2020, mm. right? And then we put a deck together. I think it was finished by like February 2021. And then our other producer, Samir Hernandez, who like knows every athlete in the world. He asked around, like Jeremy sort of kept it close to the vest when he was in the league. So not everybody knew him. But I think Samir asked Danny Green. and Danny Green was a teammate of Jeremy's on the Raptors. Yeah, And Danny put us in touch and initially jeremy was just like guys like you know this i didn't know that many athletes before i did this project and i didn't understand the mindset of an athlete especially one towards the twilight of their career right and he was like i don't know how much longer i have at this if i start looking back at my career Mm. It's over.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Fascinating. Yeah, right. Yeah. And
2: I was like, wow, I never really thought about it that mm-hmm. way. And he was like, I'm trying to write as many chapters as yeah. I can. I don't want Linsanity to define me. Yeah. And I respected that. I just didn't, I didn't get it until I talked to him. But I also was like, wow, he didn't see it the way I did. Because I think we all just assume this is like the hard part about when a human being becomes a symbol. You forget that they're human. Right. Like you just assume that people who become symbols of hope and aspiration get it exactly the way you feel it. And it did not register with me that he didn't think about Lindsay the exact way that I <laughs> felt about him. <laughs> so I had to just like connect with Jeremy as a human being first. Right. And it took some time. I mean, we pitched him, I think April. And then to get to know each other, Samir at the time was at Slam Magazine. And May is Asian American History Month, right? And this is like 2021. So like, this is in the the hit of that anti-Asian violence moment. This is right after the shootings in Atlanta. People felt like shit. So Slam had dedicated the month of May to covering Asian hoopers. And there's this kid. He plays a D1 ball at Loyola Marymount here, LMU. His name is Anthony Yu. And Anthony, we did this one-on-one with Anthony and Jeremy And I directed it Mm -hmm. to get everybody comfortable. And that was dope. That was dope. That was like the thing that we did before we started the process of making the movie. So after that, by July, we had convinced Jeremy to sign on. And then (laughs) you guys would not believe it because look, we had Jeremy attached, right? And we thought this was a done deal. I mean, like, this is insanity. How could you not say yes to this story? We thought everybody would be interested. So we put a deck together with Jeremy's attachment to it. And then we took it out to market. And we took it to a really big place. And they, uh, they said no. And they, it's wild. Because the person who said no to us, like, after the movie came out and it was big, he was trying to justify or he felt bad. It was awkward. Yeah, it was yeah, like yeah. this luncheon. And he was like, you know, we really wanted to say yes, but I don't even know if he realized how fucked up this was. And he was like, but we're doing this other story. And we already had our Asian story for there the years. Right. Oh, so there it, it is. And he just didn't register that that's right. fucked yeah. to say.
0: And You're like, we are already committed to Space Jam 2. So <laughs> we can't, can't do another basketball movie.
2: Um, And then right after that, we took it to another place like a big streaming platform and they were interested and they took us all the way in till the treatment phase and then they just yanked it and said no mm. and we were like man how hard is it to tell the asian story we live in hollywood now where there are more opportunities for scripteds to exist that are asian beef was amazing this year yeah. everything all over all at once we don't need that needs no introduction chris Rage asians these are projects that are getting made but they're not true stories They're not documentaries, and I think I get this question all the time when I'm talking to folks, being like, how does it feel to be in Hollywood at a time when all these stories are being told? It's not true in documentaries Mm. at all, because the minute people tell you that it's true is Mm. when a lot of people tune out, and the true story, the biggest true story for Asian Americans that we have for the modern era Island sanity, right. and we couldn't get people to buy it.
0: Yeah,
2: that's insane. Mm-hmm. Yeah, right. I get a light though. There are
0: moments where I felt like when I was watching Beef, I was like, "This is like a documentary. This, <laughs> <I was like, laughs> this, is a so, so church true to, scene." I I know know right, right. Yeah, right. The, 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 scene. the Korean church scene. I was like, "Oh shit, this is a documentary. What <laughs> am I, I stepping <laughs> into right now?"
2: <laughs> that I mean, legit. But when you can prepare, when yeah. you can plan, when you can. Why it's called scripted, right? right? When you can script what you're seeing, you have a lot more leeway to make interesting characters, Yeah. right? And you don't really have that leeway in documentary. Right. They are who they are, right? right?
1: So, is that what attracts you to it? Did you always know that you wanted to do the documentary route as
2: opposed to the scripted route? I am not somebody who wants to stick in one lane at all, right? right. So right now we're in the middle of pitching a bunch of scripteds. Okay. Um... We're in the middle of pitching a podcast, right? It's just whatever is the right medium for the story to be told, yeah. we do it that way. But for me, you could tell insanity as a scripted, but like it needed to be done in a way that captured fans' reactions, right? And you needed real people to say how they felt. So that demands a documentary. Yeah. Sure. yeah. So after we got those two two really big no's, we were like, man, let's just raise the money ourselves. Who has money and is Asian and is in their mid to late thirties who remembers it's insanity the way that I did. <laughs> yeah. It's like, Oh, people in the Bay, people who work okay, in
0: tech. No, that's true. It's yeah, true, it man. It is.
1: That's so right. It's so smart.
2: <laughs> yeah. So we basically, there's Dave Lou, who's an angel investor. We got connected with Dave and we told David about, first of all, I sort of had a good inkling that he was going to be down with the project because his IG handle is literally D sanity. <laughs> and I was like, all right, he's gonna be down he's gonna be down and you're like, <laughs> mm, I don't 50. We'll see um so I mean, Dave was so in, and yeah. he just opened his network to us, and he just sent twenty emails mm-hmm. and then by the end of two weeks, we raised about hundred and twenty thousand uh. dollars and it was enough for us to get the interviews done, yeah, and once we had the interviews done. I mean, the stuff that costs a lot in a sports documentary is like the highlights, right? you know what I mean? Stuff like that. And NBA needs to give you, yeah, care. exactly. Mm. So that was around the time. So we started filming fall of 2021. And then at the end of the year, when we were just about done with the interviews, Trayvon was working on another project with HBO. Actually, it's about to come out right now called BS High, coming out on HBO no. on August 23rd. About Bishop Sycamore. That's right, baby. Bishop Sycamore. Yeah. Another,
0: that's another like, yo, is this is real life? <laughs> exactly. This,
2: so he was working on B.S. High with HBO at the time. And the producer on B.S. High, her name is Bentley Weiner. She was just like, yeah, what other stuff are you guys working on? And he was like, well, I'm working on this thing about Jeremy Lin. And she was like, hold the presses. She was like, I've been trying to do a, something about this for a decade. And we didn't know how serious she would be. But the next day, she called up Trayvon, she was just like, I was serious. Yeah, I want to see more. That's dope. And at that point, we were like, okay, we're so close. We have one more interview done, and then we have a string out ready for her. So after we finished, the last interview was in January of 2022. Afterwards, we took a little bit. We put the string out together, and we sent it to HBO, and they bought it. It's crazy, right? But that's look all all power to Bentley for making that happen. If it wasn't for her, Mm. I don't know where we'd be because. What you all see is the product of the HBO process. Right? Yeah. Yeah, Like that's when it sounds great. That's when it looks amazing. That's when you get the juices flowing. Mm. Right? Box office, baby. Exactly. (laughs) So, yeah. And by March, we had a cut ready for Tribeca. And we got into Tribeca in March. And then it was submitted in full in May and it premiered at Tribeca in June of 2022. So think about that. June of 2021. We had not yet gotten Jeremy to sign on, and then June of 2022, the project was premiering at Tribeca. Tribeca. That's wild. It's a crazy timeline. So, all
0: right, let me ask you this: This is an argument I've had with my friends, but going back to full circle, you being a Knicks fan, if this did not happen in the Garden in New York, like it still would have been sensational, but by order of magnitude, do you think it would have gripped the country? Right. So, if it was like if he was on. The Sacramento Kings, or like you keep know. keep blasting cities yeah. around <laughs> nah, nah, the country. Yeah, nah, keep saying, going, so, keep like, going. Like, no. Charlotte. Charlotte. <laughs> He's on a Charlotte Hornets. <laughs> how do you think it would have been different? Like, what role did New York City as a place,
2: but also Madison Square Garden as basketball mecca? Do you think all of it has, has to story? do with it? I mean, even timing. Think about that, right? That's happened in Wait, I mean, in the first two weeks of February. That is right after the Super Bowl, which the Giants had just won. Right, and that is in the dead. I mean, pre-March Madness, post-Super Bowl, pre-Masters. That is literally the dead zone of sports. Right, right. And you are in the media capital of the world, so all the press outlets can just easily access you. And yes, then you have the lore of having New York across your chest, of having the the Madison Square Garden ceiling above you. Mm-hmm. So then, all of it works. All of it is magic. So it's timing. It's place. It's the person. And I think all of that, too, is like, do you meet the moment? Like, how do you choose to meet the moment? Because you can go to what at the time was called the Verizon Center in D.C. (laughs) That's right. Yeah. You can go to the Verizon Center and cross up John Wall and dunk. Yeah. Okay. Or you can go to Utah and drop 24 or something. But to do it against... This is 2012. Kobe and the Lakers, two years removed from the championship. Yeah. They got Pau Gasol, They got Kobe. They got Meta World Peace. They got Derek Fisher. Like, this is still all the components of a this team was that recently they won. I'm really sorry. Exactly. So, like, I look, to be totally honest with you, I thought the game was, I thought that was a game that it was going to end. Like, I was living in DC at the time, and I was so angry at myself that I missed that Wizards game. I had to be like, I don't even remember what the event I had to be at, but I had to be the an event I couldn't miss. You we were Whatever doing was.
1: politics work. Yeah. yeah, and I
2: was like, what yeah. the yeah. fuck am I doing? And then I remember watching him do the dunk. And I was like, I could have been there for that <laughs> dunk. <laughs> and the Lakers game is like right after. So I was yeah. just like, you know what? I'm just going to take the train. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't have tickets. This is pre-Vivid Seats, pre hub. This is scalper yeah. heaven, yeah. you know? Yeah. yeah. So I take the train up. And if you know, if you go into the old Penn Station, it's like right underneath the garden, right. right. So I remember just jolting out of the train and just running up those escalator steps, and then you're in front of the garden. And man, these these scalpers they see me coming from a mile away right? <laughs> <laughs> because I know why Many he's here. Random ass Asian people, yeah. no, right. we're in and New York I remember because right? like I I spent a good amount of time in front of the garden trying yeah. to see what the cheapest tickets I could find were. And I remember I just I watched this old Asian couple. They were clearly like. They were speaking Cantonese. I remember yeah. just like yo, these are people who are in town from like Hong Kong or some yep. shit, and they were paying a thousand dollars for tickets. Jeez. They were just doing it, and I was February. like, I don't have a thousand dollars, man. This is That's nuts. Like, uh... So the cheapest tickets I could find were seven hundred dollars, and right. they were pretty close to nosebleeds. Right, and I was like, man, I took. I mean, I already came up here. I spent hundred dollars on train tickets, like. I'm I'm 27 years old. Like I don't have that much money. Right. And I was really bummed, but I was like, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna do this. Yeah. I'll find another way. And uh, good thing is Koreatown like right next door. That's right. So I walk over to Koreatown and I just like find a karaoke bar and I, I like plop myself down at the bar. I told Jeremy this when we started filming. I don't think I would have traded the experience I ended up having mm. for being in the garden. Oh wow. Yeah. Because you can imagine, right? I'm surrounded by people see, who look right, like yeah, me. Yeah. That's right. That's right. That's right. Yeah. Right? And we had two hours of people losing their minds. Yeah. Right? And look, to me, it's two things, right? Because I'm losing my mind. I'm drunk. But I'm also an observer. Yeah. Right? I'm trying to see what is happening. And I was like, this has got to be two things. It's the external pressure of people being stereotyped every day and having this cathartic release from it. It's the internal pressure of maybe not having to live up your parents' dreams because you're playing piano and violin. You really want to play basketball. And then you see this, and it's another cathartic reaction to it. Yeah, it's the internal and external pressure that's being released. And that's how I felt, at least. And that's how I've always thought about that night. I remember like towards the end of the game when it was obvious the Knicks were going to win, I thought he was going to hit 40, by the way. I was like, this is going to be a 40 piece. This is amazing. And uh, there was this guy who was sitting probably three, four seats down to me on the bar and he was weeping. Yeah. Mm-hmm. He was just weeping. Mm-hmm. And then he slammed his drink on the bar. And he ran out the door. And the like the bartender was like
1: Just like ran out emotionally?
2: Yeah. He just wow. couldn't handle being there. Wow. wow. And I was like, What well, I mean, is he gonna come back and pay for his drinks? And like the bartender just let it go. Yeah. Yeah. She was, was just bartender like Asian? Yeah.
0: Of course. It's K Town.
2: Yeah. I mean, like I think everybody was just so caught up in the moment. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. And I was just like, yo, like, this is, this is special. Like, he took something that I already thought was special. He took something that I thought was special the moment I saw him drop 30 against Kemba on ESPN. Yeah. He took it to a level I had never, ever thought was possible. Yeah, yeah. And it just, I get chills thinking about it right now. Yeah. And we, it's, I think we all felt that way. We still feel that way. Yeah. And I think we will for the rest of
0: our lives. Yeah. I mean, it's funny you say that story because I was living in Boston at the time. I know kids who did the same thing. They were like, yo, gonna go, Lakers are in town, gonna go down. I scratched together 500, and we're like, yo, that's not gonna be enough. You know, we, there's going to be mad old Asian people with money going <laughs> to flock into the city. It's going to be like, yo, the Garden is going to be like China. That's exactly what happened. Yeah, yeah. exactly what the happened. The Garden is going to be like Chinatown. $500, yeah. you're not getting in, bro. Yeah, so we were like, and again, we were younger. We didn't have no money. And like, yeah. I, mad friends were like, yo, I'm going to take the train. Not the express, the cheap one, the regional. <laughs> I'm going to take the train down, right? Right four hours from Boston. And like, just... But then everybody did that. I think one person got a ticket. It was a solo ticket. Really? Like, literally underneath the roof. I
2: always always had a feeling that I wasn't the only person that did that. Oh, so many
1: The whole bar that you were in, probably a bunch of people there were less 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 Probably. Probably
2: not people coming from D.C. From Boston, I can see that, right? Yeah. yeah, yeah. Damn. I mean, you were living
0: in Boston when he was playing at Harvard, right? Yeah. So, I mean, I... Did people pay attention to him? So, I I think I shared this on a previous podcast. So, I actually met Jeremy when he was in college. His best (laughs) friend, Josh, a fan, and I... We overlapped one year when we were both at Boston College together, and Josh and I were pretty close at the time. And so I remember Josh was like, yo, one random day. This is I think, a year or two after I graduated. Josh and I used to play ball together all the time still. And Josh Fan was also. He's super yeah, nice. Yeah, Josh, Josh is nice. Yeah, very good nice. basketball player. And so one day he was like, yo, like I have a friend. He plays at Harvard. Can you come give me a ride? We'll get tickets, whatever. And it was against Michigan. Uh, and this was against when Tommy Amaker was yeah, coaching. Yeah. It was a big, it was a televised game. I don't know if it was ESPN, but it was televised, but it was a big Harvard versus Michigan, but it wasn't about Jeremy.
2: It was about Tommy Amaker. Right. It was
0: about Tommy Amaker. And they won that game and he played well, but it wasn't like, it wasn't like the 30 against UConn. Yeah. But after that, I started playing ball with Jeremy from time to time. Mm. And yes, very similar thing. It was like, he's nice. Best Asian basketball player I've ever played with, but... Never in my wildest dreams was like he's gonna make the
2: league. Yeah, because he's six three. Right, and yeah. he's scrawny. Yeah, right. He like he looks like us. Yes. Okay. Like if you see the photos from our premiere, so both our producers, Samir and Trayvon, they used to be high school teammates with Tyson Chandler, Dominguez, number one team in the country. So, at the I time, remember yeah. watching yeah. him in high school. Yeah, because I taught at Compton High School.
1: <laughs> I remember watching. So like. Yeah.
2: They're both six seven. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So the photos from our premiere are hilarious because Jeremy looks like he's my, he's six three. I'm six feet. Right. So we're in the middle, and then our two producers are six. They're like, "Who is the movie about? It's about basketball? Who is the movie about? Right? And like that's why people he didn't yeah. pass the eye test for right. people. But
0: even back then, I remember because we there was a handful of parks in Boston at a time. One of the more competitive park games on the weekend was in Watertown. Okay. And it was a nice courts in Watertown. So we would roll up, five five Asian guys play, and Jeremy was there. And just before a game, you know, we're just messing around, layup lines. And just, I think, to fuck around, Jeremy would just go up and flush one, just like every now and again. Yeah. And it just, again, because people had never seen- Never seen the, anything like a, that. And not a guard, not Yao Ming. Yeah, exactly. Like yeah, yeah. right. <laughs> a guard, like somebody who looks like them, size-wise- Go up and, and dunk a basketball with ease. I mean, he wasn't yeah. doing, like, no. crazy stuff, but he was dunking with ease. Yeah. And he's like, yeah, he might go to Harvard, but he's still a D1-level basketball player. But, like, you were talking about the UConn game. But it wasn't until the UConn game where even we, people that knew him or played with him, were like, yo, he got a shot, man. Like, before it was like, I don't know. Even yeah. if he is on the lower rung or the fringe of, like, late second round, two-way type of guys— He's Asian. They're not gonna give him a look. And then he dropped 30 on Kemba national television. And this is right after
2: you kinda won the national championship.
0: Yeah. yeah. And and we're like, oh shit. If people didn't know, now they know. He still might not get a shot. But the question of can he play on the big stage at the college level has been answered at least, right? Yeah. 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 Who'd you model your game after? Man, that's a good question. I'm trying to remember at the time who, but like I was and this stayed true even through college after I was like the Rip Hamilton, Reggie Miller, right? Oh, you're like working. sprint off of screens. Yeah. yeah. yeah three point Mid shooter. Range. But okay. I, was, I would say like, I was the three and D prototype. <laughs> I was the three and D prototype, you know? So even when you're I You're responsible played, for the state of the league. Yeah. Today. Cause I was, there are guys who are better offensively than I am. Can dribble, can drive, can do all right. those things. But I was not tall, tall, but tall yeah. for my age. And in I was, a- I in was athletic. In the space, you three or four. Right. right? And I was Asian athletic. Mm. And so I was like, all right. I'm going to run around, and I'm going to shoot, shoot the lights out, and I'm going to D up uh, the best offensive player on the mm.
2: team now. Yeah. 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 How are you, Frank? Uh, this is funny because I obviously grew up a UConn fan, but Allen Iverson, man. Because mm. oh, yeah. mm. the crossover was crazy. Yeah. I just remember like being at the park and just... I mean, do you remember the crossover I don't think he invented it, but he popularized it, yes, yeah. right? The one where he turn when he the, he spins while the crossovers happen. Yep. like yeah. I and I just I remember me and my friends just being at the park and just practicing that nah, for hours, problem, so not that we all thought we could be Allen Iverson, but he was the coolest cat, right? Like you didn't mm-hmm. like it was like when I was growing up, it was Jordan is a god, Penny is approachable. But Iverson was cool. Yeah. And I mean, he changed the culture. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And I always loved the UConn players, but I never really was like, oh my God, I'm going to model my game after Ray Allen right. or Rip Hamilton or Karam Butler or anything yeah. like that. It was always like, okay, this guy has commercials and he just crossed up Michael Jordan. Yeah. So Iverson's like, I mean, I think he, he's very much what we all wanted John Moran to be. Or maybe oh, he still is, but like for kids now, he was that person for millennials. I think. Yeah, I still remember the Reebok ads he did with Jada Kiss. Oh, yeah. like that stuff. I remember rapping that like when I was a kid with Yo, my friends. This it was, the was amazing.
0: Commercial still. Yeah, to this day. To this day, yeah. to this day. Well, Tommy. I mean, for you, it's Nick Van Exel, right? I mean, you were the next Nick the Quick. Is that the? I, mean, was, I think was he was the one. So I grew up.
1: In the eighties Lakers. I was not actually not a Kobe fan. Yeah. But that team in between those two eras where Nick, Eddie Jones, Cedric Zabalos, Eldon Campbell, Vladiva, I love that team. Yeah. George. Mm-hmm. Lynch, I Rick love that. Fox. Team. Oh. You know, and like I love Bales Nick DeFanics because when I played, I would be the guy who would shoot the if it's like fourteen, thirteen, right? Yeah. Next point wins. I'm not giving up the ball. Yeah. I will shoot and I'll turn around. And I'll say game. I'll see, see Tommy, right. Tommy was Nick Young before Nick Young came. Yeah, yeah, that's, that's right. What he was doing. And then it, and it, it like... was fucking brick and I had to play defense. Oh, so man. Right. But right. everybody dreamed defense. defense. So I Loose. love Nick Banks so, until the whole Cancun thing. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So I also grew up Showtime Lakers. I aspired to be Byron Scott. And so, like, I practiced a lot of spots, but I was never, so I shot from his spots. But in practicality, I was a little chunkier, so I was really more Rook Mahorn. And it was more <laughs> the, like, the, like, stay in the post and, like, fuck somebody up
0: with my oboe and get a rebound and yeah. hit the open jumper kind of thing. That was really more my game. You were the OG Big Baby Davis. One of the things we talk about, and there's been a lot of folks who've spoken on this, but groups, grew up, born and raised in Southern California. So I talk a certain way. And I think one of the stories I shared is like, when I moved to Boston to go to college, people were like, yo, where are you from? They're confused, right? I never heard an Asian call this way. And I'm like, oh, shit. I don't even understand the question. I speak the way everybody in my community speaks, regardless right. of culture, race, or whatever. And I think Brian was like just pointing out, I was like, this is just a different version of speaking English with an accent. You know what I mean? Which is like, a different accent than what people anticipate.
1: We talked about this in the last episode. And that shows the power of the media. It's fucking crazy. Yeah. Your work is so important. This shit is about storytelling. We got to tell this story over and over and over again. We are not a monolith. We've got a lot of opinions. It's frustrating. It's It's hella frustrating. Uh, But I
2: I think, look, when you're doing this work, you sort of have to, I accept that people have those stereotypes by default. Mm. That way, I'm never surprised. I'm not happy with it. Yeah. But I'm recognizing how I'm perceived. And when you do that, you sort of start your storytelling in a different place. Most people, when they tell their storytelling, they emphasize the personal first, which is, I mean, personal is most powerful. And I think when you're Asian American, you know that that's powerful, but you also know that when people see you as a monolith, when there is a certain sort of perception that's already there, you have to find the loopholes there for your storytelling to take root. Oh, interesting. You know what I mean? It's and very like strategic. Yeah. You have to. You have yeah. to. Like, why do you think the movie is thirty eight minutes long? <laughs> The you, movie you
0: yeah. didn't have the budget
2: for thirty eight. No, 38. no, we you we we, we could have done it that way. That's all we had. We could have done right. it. No, well, no, but when HBO came in, we had You're, more money, yeah. right? But yeah, yeah, no, right, they're like,
1: yeah. thank God, Jeremy did not show <laughs> for forty five. We didn't no. have a
2: budget for forty five. Thirty eight minutes long is because yeah. it's technically a short, right. yeah. So it's inviting mm. because you know that most people don't pay attention to Asian stories, especially if they're true. So you basically say, Oh, if I'm not playing or I don't have that much time, I have thirty-eight minutes. Let me watch this. Because I didn't want to be just Asian Americans and basketball fans watching 38 Garden. I wanted to be everybody. Yeah, right. Right, right. So that like, you had to make it accessible. But that's what I mean. When you understand the stereotypes by default, you make your storytelling decisions from there. Mm. And it definitely worked. Because every I mean, like if I made a two hour movie we wouldn't have zero events.
0: No. So yeah, right.
2: Like, <laughs> if we made a 38 true. movie, everybody wants to do Q and A afterwards. We have like, we did over 50 events for the movie. That's you know true, what I mean? But I ain't going to lie.
0: The first time I watched the movie, I was fucking heated. I ain't going to lie. This is a direct complaint. If y'all had a comment box, this is okay. what I in have comment box. Because the first time I watched short. the movie, I understand why it's 38 minutes. Super fucking clever. So Asian. So so <laughs> Asian. This is before I, I met you. I was like, Super, super you know why it is it's 38 minutes you, can, you watch no. it from la to video no, exactly, exactly. I, to I, was like, yeah. to I was like i was like you know you know what i don't know frank i never met this guy i get it so so asian or frank to make this 30 so clever <laughs> but you know what though this could have been 90 minutes it could have been, oh, been it could have been a mini series you know I mean? but exactly. the whole point
2: is here's the thing you feel that way because you feel very very closely attached to the insanity yeah that was not the audience sure. for sure. this. I get it. Okay? Yep. The audience for this are people who don't ever think about this. Yeah. And then they might, and they come across the story, and they're like, oh, wow. Mm. I never thought about basketball, but this is amazing. This is more than basketball. If you know the whole Jeremy Lynn story, you're pissed you're right. that it's 38 minutes That's long. Because right. right. you want to know about how he left. Oh, you want to uh, know about Mello. Everything. You want to know about the whole career. You want to know about all of that stuff. Guess what? I'm not interested. That's right. I was like, I yeah. need and a 12-minute you know,
0: segment on him sleeping on Landry Fields' sofa. Yeah, I mean, he legit. I, I'm
2: sure that there will be somebody who will be a great director to put that out in the world. Yeah. It's not me. That's true. Yeah, yeah. I'm the director, and I make the decisions. That's so okay? dope. Yeah. And like, but but like, okay. you know, I, I say that to people, people get so mad. No, but it, You no, know what it's, I mean? People are like, cool
0: now. It's cool <laughs> now that you're here. Because the very first time I watched Dirty and the Guardian, and the credits were rolling, and directed by Frank Cheat. I was like, you know what? Fuck Frank Chee. <laughs> I was like, fuck oh, Frank You know why? Because I was like, Frank Cheat did this 38 minutes. I understand.
2: Very strategic. He seems very smart.
0: Yeah. But this should have been 90 minutes. He's yeah, not- because you,
2: you know the story too well. That's right. You like- know the story too well. The, and, and that, we knew that yeah. going in, right? But again, what we were saying earlier, when you yeah, are man. an Asian American storyteller, right. you look for the loopholes. Yeah. You gotta and leave wanting
1: to. You gotta leave them wanting.
2: Oh, Oh, totally, totally. And if you want to know more about Jeremy's story, the entire story is out there. You know, you don't have to just watch 30 of the Garden. 30 of the Garden is for people, for somebody who's not Asian to step into an Asian person's shoes. That is what 30 of the Garden is. It is not for Jeremy Lin, like, super fans. Okay, you got plenty of ways to be super fans for Jeremy, but it is that the movie is not for that. Exactly, exactly.
1: I love sitting on an airplane ride, whether it's a... Hour plane ride, two hours, three hours, like six hour plane ride. Watching people watch the Jeremy Lin story.
0: What are and, you like looking actively? Oh, yeah. you're looking me, you're walking up and down the aisle. That's like, right? Yeah. No,
1: you. I mean, you walk over to the. I <laughs> know people who do do that. On, I know people, people who do on? do that. Tommy or the Chang person is walking Dude, down down there's the aisle this one dude. Slowly. There's this one dude who he every
0: single time he flies American, he posts a photo of him watching. <laughs> oh my god! Oh, wow. Yo, I could see. I could actually envision Tommy walking down the aisle. Tapping a bro on the shoulder would be like, Taiwanese Nick Van Exel right here, bro. <laughs> Taiwanese Nick Van Exel. Just,
2: just, just saying. Right. Right. Do, oh my God. God. Do you think no, no, bro. No, no. Taiwanese Jeremy Lin. Tommy's Tommy's going, Tommy's Jimmy, now you can Top say Germany's that. Jeremy. Yeah, Now you can say that. <laughs> <laughs> when I was a kid, if I made a shot, everyone would say Chinese Reggie Miller. Yep. You yeah. know what I mean? Because you didn't have any reference points, no, right? Were,
0: but we came up at a time, though. It was, it was, it was Yao Ming.
1: Ming. It was Yao Ming. Yeah, it was and like in the
0: NBA. It's like,
1: I don't relate to a five. Nah, dog.
2: exactly exactly no but like no no, this is a great i'm glad we got to talk about it because it is definitely something i hear a lot from asian dudes yeah like first of all like if you just follow linsanity religiously you cannot stand the movie is 38 minutes long okay absolutely absolutely and again Y'all weren't the target audience. No, it's true, it's right? True. And like, it, it, I love, I, but I love, I actually, I, I remember when we came up with the decision to do that. I was like, oh, these insanity super fans are gonna be yeah. so pissed. <laughs> going <be> fucking <laughs> hate It'll be so. That's right. Yeah. But like, it it worked. It, I mean, yeah. it worked in a way that, like, well, here's the thing too, right? I'm never gonna make a movie for movie's sake. Yeah. I I make a movie for a reason, yeah. and the reason is like a social impact that's right. right and and that's what a movie that's that long can do because yeah. everybody has access to it so that
0: does it for part one of this episode with frank chi in part two we get into more of his background with storytelling how he got started what really inspired him we get into his political career again super exciting conversation so stay tuned for part two that will drop very very soon Thank you, everybody, for listening, streaming, downloading till next time.